This is The Guardian. Today, as the Women's World Cup approaches, a former England midfielder on what to look out for in this year's contest and why she's calling for huge reforms to the game. Tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock UK time, two teams of footballers will walk out onto the pitch at Eden Park, New Zealand's national stadium. The players of Norway and New Zealand, like those of each of the 32 countries competing in this year's World Cup, will have been preparing for a moment like this for years. You're such an inspiration to all the girls and boys out there. Keep smashing it in Australia and do England proud. I'm sure they absolutely will. England go into this tournament riding high. When they won last year's Euros, they inspired a nation of women and girls to see that this is our game too. And he goes, bronze right, got the touchdown, Kelly's in there. And they proved to the Football Association, to the government, to school teachers and grassroots coaches across the country that women's football is worth investing in. So everyone here in Trafalgar Square. Everyone at home, everyone around the country, please welcome to the stage your victorious England Lionesses, everyone. In this World Cup, they'll have a lot to prove again. Can they keep up their success when several of their star players are out injured? We're getting this update on Beth Mead. It was suspected that she'd suffered a really bad injury. The former England midfielder Karen Carney, who's now a football pundit and who's just led a landmark review into the women's game, says they need to go out there with swagger. It's your dream when you're a little little girl or little boy um, to play in a World Cup. So for me, it was just it was just awesome. Carney, that's a great effort. Oh, special goal. Great strike. That was from Karen Carney. I like the noise, I like the volume, I like the energy because then you kind of think, right, we've got to perform here. You, you kind of turn into an actor-actress and you've got to put on a performance. Over the next four weeks, we'll be watching some of the best international football, inspiring the next generation of stars. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the World Cup and the future of the women's game. Karen, the Women's World Cup kicks off tomorrow. It's being hosted jointly by Australia and New Zealand. 
for people who haven't watched much women's football before and maybe, you know, got really excited about it uh, at the Euros with the Lionesses win, what do you think people can expect from this tournament? Is it going to be a big part of our lives over the next month? I hope so. Um, I hope everyone just falls in love with it like they did in the Euros and I've got every confidence there will. And I think, of course, you'll fall in love with the Lionesses as everyone did in the Euros, but I think you'll find there'll be players from different countries that people, especially from the UK, will equally fall in love with. I think you'll see some incredible talent. I think you'll hear some incredible stories in their journeys. Just get us excited about it. What are you looking forward to? I've been watching the games the last three or four days relentlessly, like scouting the players, scouting the teams. And I'm just excited about the quality of football. And I'm excited to see Australia and New Zealand, in particular Australia, doing their opening game. Um, just as a host nation, because I saw what the European Championships did for England in terms of hosting, the impact that it could have on both host nations. So um, I'm just desperate to see some football. Uh, we've been talking about this for a long time, so um, I can't wait for the games to kick off. England are going to play their first game on Saturday against Haiti. Anyone who watched the Lionesses in the Euros last year will have fallen in love with that team. It's going to be a little bit different this time, isn't it? Because sadly, some of the star players are going to be missing from this tournament. Beth Mead, Fran Kirby, Leah Williamson are all injured. How might that affect our chances? I'd also put in there Jill Scott and Ellen White. Jill and Ellen both retired. And I think having that kind of the work rate and the professionalism of both Ellen and Jill as senior players in a squad and what they both brought for me is irreplaceable at times. So it's not just the injured players. You, you've lost, for me, five top quality players um, who were instrumental both on and off the pitch. Um, but unfortunately, injuries happen. And, and I think it gives an opportunity for young players. I think we'll see a different style of England. The first Women's World Cup was held back in 1991 in China. And since then, it's been the same four teams that have won. The US, Germany, Norway and Japan. The US have won four times. And, you know, lots of people will know of Megan Rapino, who was their star player and helped them win two of those tournaments. She became an icon across the world. Do you expect that one of those big four will get it this year as well? Or are there other teams that we should be looking out for? I think from the quarterfinal onwards, I think any team could win it. Um, but I think USA have been a powerhouse for a while, I think they've been the best resource. They've got the, the players that they could pick from. You know, they're back-to-back winners twice now and they'll be going for the third one in a row. I think that because of the investment in women's football over the last five or six years, I think it's really, really um, made the gap against a top team smaller. Whereas I think previously, you know, when even when I played, the gap between us and USA in 2007 and Germany was just too big because we were at the very infancy of our kind of development. But the gaps between the best and the rest are narrowing. You know, there's, there's a good few in there. You're looking at Canada, current gold medalists. You're looking at Germany and the European style there. You know, Euro finalists, really. We've got us in the mix as well. You've got France with the new manager and Australia. I, I've been watching Australia really closely. I really, really like them. Um, there's a core group that could, could easily go on and win it. And it goes, bronze right, got the touchdown, Kelly's in there, the doctor has brought it in, Kelly scores for England, and you two Germany won. 
England have won a major trophy for the first time ever. Let's focus for a bit on how things are going for the women's game over here. What has the excitement around the Euros victory meant for investment in the game over the past year? Well, I think it's it's put a spotlight on the sport, and rightly so. We've got this incredible group, this incredible manager, this incredible group that have brought success since you know, the first time since 1966. And they did it in such style and on home soil and you know that that day at Wembley when we won against Germany again like the story it just it put a spotlight on it but I think in terms of investment and momentum I would say I would have thought it had more of an impact I really do but I think the stereotypes and kind of the acceptance has shifted in such a positive way the nation's behind it I think everyone's aware of who the Lionesses are more female players the recognition, but I would just still say that this, we could do more and push more. The government's acknowledged that there are systematic problems at the moment that are stopping more women getting into or carrying on with the game. And so it was in September last year that they asked you to lead a review into it. How did you go about starting that process of working out what the problems are at the moment? So... I basically looked into every aspect of women's football from grassroots to academy to the pro game to the international side to facilities, broadcasting, commercial value. Every aspect of of women's football I was tasked to look into and to speak to everybody over the course of eight to nine months. So it was immensely taxing. Um, What I found was, you know, we started the call on speaking about the Lionesses and you see the success of the Lionesses. It inspired so many people to play football. But what we were finding was there's not enough facilities. There's not enough facilities for for how many people want to play. And we need to find more safer facilities that are more female friendly, you know, changing rooms, toilets, sanitary provisions, you name it. It's it's not enough. And it was always, you think about football pitches, they were always, you know, made for the demand of, who wanted to play, and that historically was men and boys. And also the mindsets, you know, there's people saying to me, we can't get on the pitch because the, the men and boys are, are prioritised mm. and or we're getting kicked off. And so, so they're kind of the participation barriers at, at grassroots. And there's a lot of flaws in the system that ultimately, you know, affect women's football, how the fans are experiencing it. How can we produce our next talented group of lionesses? How can we also inspire the the little girl that just wants to play with her friends in a safe environment. Also, how do we ensure that our sport is a, is a representation of what our wider community should look like? The diversity aspect we looked into as well, which is not right at this moment in time. Mm, even when, when you look at the Lionesses team, it, it has become increasingly white. Yeah, and look, we had we worked with loads of, of groups. We had lots of feedback and, um, you know, spoke to young girls, teenagers and you know, if I'm in a city, just said, Karen, look, it's uninspiring. You know, looking at the lionesses, it's uninspiring because you got you want to be able to see it to be it, and we can't relate to that because it it's it's not accurate. It doesn't give a representation of what England looks like. It goes back to facilities. Can we put more facilities in more diverse areas so people don't have to travel? You know, academies, more investment so people don't have to travel, and it's easier to get more people to play. And, and what they are is they're the basics. Your report was published last week and it's had 
lots of support from people who are involved in the game in different ways. Our colleague Susie Rack, who presents the Women's Football Weekly podcast and is, you know, real authority on this. She's written that no fan of the women's game should ignore this review. We should use it to hold the old and new custodians of the game accountable. Just tell us about the key recommendations you make in it. Well, again, uh, I'm I'm smiling because, you know, it's nice to have Susie um, back me because you're always worried, aren't you? Not not from Susie, but you're just worried how it lands. And, um, you know, I've got goosebumps listening to that. So obviously, um, very, very thankful that it, it appeared to land well. Led by the former England international Karen Carney, it makes a number of recommendations. It's calling for the top two tiers to go fully professional. It wants to redirect some funding from the men's FA Cup prize pot and have a dedicated broadcast slot, possibly on Saturdays at 3pm. So we recommended that the top two um, tiers of women's football, WSL and women's championship need to be professionalised for so many reasons and minimum standards. Um, we brought in a recommendation on what those minimum standards should look like Um just because we heard so many stories of, for instance, if the championship's not fully professional, the players can't have player unionship. So the players can't turn to anyone. Um, they can't ask for help. They can't ask for guidance because it's not deemed as professional. Right. So the players then have gotten, imagine not having no union representation. It's really, really tricky and challenging. You're just at the mercy of, of your club ownership, essentially. Yeah. And like, where do they report into issues? How do they seek help? Medical care. You know, players reported to me that the clubs weren't backing them medically, so they were signing on to the NHS to get medical treatment, mm. which is, this is elite professional women's football, so we're told. So um, that's not good enough. And players not having the right medical staff and, and getting treated for injuries that should be about five weeks happening to five months or some reporting to me saying, look, it's early retirement, Karen, these injuries. So... Uh, the professionalisation of top two tiers and raising the minimum standards was a high priority for me and the team. Was there anything you came across in the course of doing your research that really shocked you? Yeah, how the players were treated really, really shocked me. Uh, At a professional level? Yeah, I mean, that was actually quite tough to hear, really, in terms of the medical, um, the medical side of the game and Someone said to me, Karen, that the players have been treated as second-class citizens. When I retired four years ago, I thought the game had moved on, but hearing it, it hadn't. And then I think the one that personally got me was the misogyny, how the women's game is viewed or how it's, you know, a headache, as opposed to seeing an exciting opportunity for going part of this review would be past certain issues but um, it still hit us front and centre so that for me was quite tough. Karen, the pay gap between the men's and women's games is still appalling. Of course salaries vary but the average Premier League player can expect to be earning a hundred times what the average women's Super League player is. How do you suggest we sort that out? What people always challenging me on the differences between what men and women earn. Okay, but my priority at this moment in time is mm. 
is actually placing a salary floor in. You know, as players coming to me saying, Karen, we're earning four to five thousand pounds and we're working three or four jobs. You know, you've got players on good money versus people that are working three or four jobs and on five thousand pounds. If you look at that's the product, but think about the human side of that player that's on five thousand pounds and working three or four jobs, they are fatigued, their injury rates are significantly higher, they're dehydrated, they're not getting the right nutrition support. Um, if they're going into training, again, how can we ever make this player the best they can be? And how does it make them feel as a human to feel valued? It doesn't. So for me, the most important thing at this moment in time is getting the salary floor in it and going, this is the minimum standard a player should be paid if they want to be deemed as a professional footballer. You suggested the salary floor should be about 20000 a year, which is the national living wage still pretty low for a professional sports person and we really don't want talented players dropping out along the way because they can't afford to be in this sport and they don't feel you know respected enough by the situation so much of this comes down to money at a grassroots level as well you know whether schools and grassroots clubs are funded Mm -hmm. whether as you say parents can afford the kit and manage to transport their daughters to training have you worked out what it would cost to make those things a reality where the funding might come from to support people better at a grassroots level I think I were I mentioned the word investment 92 times so I was repeatedly told um so I'm fully aware I'm, I'm asking for for money, but I'm not asking for the world. If you're asking specifically on terms of grassroots, people telling me, Karen, we're traveling an hour to a facility and there's no toilets there for my little girl. You know, that can't be the case now. Um, we all need to do more. I mean, that's very basic, isn't that's it? That's what I mean, get the basics right. And, um, you know, even myself, when I started playing, it, that hasn't really changed. And in the, you know that's a long time ago since I was a little girl playing grassroots football. So, you know, this has been a systemic problem for many, many years now, and um, enough's enough. How big an industry do you think women's football could become if we see the sorts of changes you've put forward actually coming to fruition? I know a lot of people have saw me mention it could be a billion pound industry in ten years. I, I do believe that. Um, mm. I think you have to be, you have to have that belief and that confidence. If you look at the success of the Lionesses and some individual clubs that are doing it really, really well, you know, they've been they've been doing it well for I would argue only a short amount of time. So imagine if you got it right and you've been doing it for five to ten years. Imagine where the sport could actually be. And imagine if we didn't make the fan travel so so far where it's difficult to get to because of lack of public transport imagine if we marketed the sport even better imagine if we got the ticketing right because again it's so hard for a fan imagine if we got the facilities and the academy piece right so the pipeline is thriving i really do think we'd we'd have an unbelievable league and we'd be able to produce a lioness team that didn't only have success in 2022 and fingers crossed at this this world cup coming i think we'd have it for a long, long time, and we'd be going. It's not just USA who have won it, you know, four times. It'd be us. I mean, this should be one of the most accessible sports that people can play. You know, anybody should be able to get hold of a football to kick around. In your report, though, you've only been able to make recommendations. The FA is not under an obligation to actually make those changes. Have they promised you they will? 
the recommendations are not only aimed at, at the FA. I need to be clear on that. There's, you know, it's aimed at many stakeholders. And you're right. Look, we can't enforce anybody to do that. And I need to have follow-up conversations with the likes of the government as well. You know, I've put forward some recommendations to the government. So, you know, put them, I've put them forward, but it's about now making sure they're actioned. And look, I can't, it's, it's not mandatory, it's not legislation, it's not, I can't enforce people to do it. But what I would say is, if you don't do it, I'm pretty much sure the sport won't grow <laughs> because these issues are not going away and these issues have been around for a long, long time. Coming up, what will it take for England to triumph down under? The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack And Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Karen, to get back to the World Cup, England are in Group D alongside China, Haiti, as we mentioned, and Denmark. Who are our main rivals and how confident are you that we'll get through the group stage? China are going to be difficult, um, organised 
you know, technically good, you know, physically good as well. I'm confident we'll get through the group game. Um, it, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy, but I'm confident we'll get through it. But I think, I think quarterfinal stage there is where it's going to get very interesting, and we're going to have to dig deep, and um, it'll really, really challenge us. And I think I'm interested to see the style of England because I think it'll be very different to the Euros. You saw, I mean, an example was when England played Australia recently and we lost 2-0 and, you know, that they, they nullified us. At that point, it was a 30-game unbeaten run that we were on. You know, teams are paying us a lot of respect, which is incredible. Um, but we might have to be patient. We might have to be a little bit more agile, a bit more adaptable because teams are literally going, we're going to sit in and we're going to stop you. We're going to sit on Kira Walsh. We're going to stop you playing. We're going to make it very difficult for you. Um, whereas they couldn't do that in the Euros. We were so, I don't think, I don't even think people expected us in the Euros to do what we did. Okay, so that little bit of extra pressure. We've mentioned several times how successful the USA team has been. What have they done that the England team might be able to learn from? You know, I was part of that squad and the team when we, played him in 2019 and the VAR decision and we missed a penalty and we now really lost 2-1. And I remember coming off the pitch and the manager at the time said, Karen, you're getting, you're getting really close to us. Um, and I thought, we're not getting really close to you. We're, we're right next to you. Um, we're, we're coming for you for sure. And I think you've seen from the England team since winning the Euros, we do have that mentality as well. Where USA historically had beaten teams, I thought, before they'd even got on the pitch. And I think we've got to go on that pitch with that confidence. And I think, you know, we've got the ability to back it up. Um, but that's what I think USA have historically done. They've walked on with swagger, they've walked on with confidence, and sometimes won the battle before even the first ball has been kicked. Where are you going to be on Saturday to watch the first England game? I'm broadcasting the game, so um, I'll be watching it and um, analysing it and um, rooting for the rooting for the England team. Um, so yeah, I'll be at the studio doing the game live. I'll probably be screaming, chanting, cheering, and throwing my breakfast cereal at the <laughs> TV. Um, so um, yeah, I'll be rooting for everybody. And just finally, I mean, what's what's the kind of magic that they're going to need to be successful in the World Cup, the England team? When it comes to mind, when you said that, I just thought of, um, well, Megan Rapino. Like I said, I played with Pino um, when we were quite a bit younger and she always had the stardust. And I look back to her, someone will have to have that stardust. And at the Euros, we had Beth Mead with that stardust and, We've got to have someone that's going to have that quality and that swagger and that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that'll be the difference. We need one player, you know, to to score six or more goals to be that top goal scorer, that golden boot. And I think we've got players. Um, I've got one in my mind, but I'm not going to say them out loud. Um, I don't want to put pressure on them. I think we have that in in a certain couple of players, but there's one that springs to mind for sure. I can't wait to watch it, Karen. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your time and thank you so much. That was Karen Carney. I'm happy to say you'll be able to watch all 64 games of this World Cup on terrestrial TV. 
The England versus Haiti match will be on ITV1 at 10.30am on Saturday and all the other matches will be split between ITV and the BBC. If you want analysis of the games that's both in-depth and fun, I recommend subscribing to The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly podcast. Faye Carruthers and Susie Rack are your hosts on that. Of course, the regular Football Weekly will carry on running. And you might like to know that they've got a book coming out too at the end of September, which you can pre-order now. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore, and this episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and Morgan Eyre. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.